You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome again, everyone, as we continue our journey together. In today's episode, I want to discuss with you how it was that Christian Universalism went from being reputable in the early church to losing its reputability in the Latin Western Church of the late Roman Empire. And I want to focus in on what happened in the Latin Western Church of the late Roman Empire because it is here that Christian Universalism gets its bad reputation. In the early centuries of the church, Christianity was not the religion of any empire. It was a nonviolent movement which was actually persecuted by the Roman Empire. During those early days, Christianity accommodated a variety of opinions with regard to how many would finally be saved. Early Christianity existed in a Greek-speaking world. The New Testament itself was written in the common Greek of the day. Therefore, early Christianity was familiar with the nuances of the native Greek language in which the New Testament was written. And so, as we saw in the last episode, some of its most prominent leaders and scholars were able to see evidence in the Greek text of the New Testament that God was about the business of saving all people in Christ. Early Christianity had no one view of hell or no one view of God's judgment to which every Christian was expected to adhere. The early Christians all believed in the judgment of God, but they respected each other's opinions as to how that judgment would play out at the end of the ages. For instance, the early church Father Origen believed that God was eternal and that God would use the ages or the aeons to complete God's purposes of restoration. And then after the aeons were concluded, God would be all in all, and then the aeons or the ages would come to an end. And then at that time, God would be all in all, and so all of us would live together in God in perfect harmony in an eternal state that is beyond the ages or the aeons. Laureate Ramelli describes the way Origen thought about all these things in her wonderful book, A Larger Hope. And she writes, Origen's idea of apocatastasis, and that's just the Greek word for restoration, entails a limited number of aeons after which the universal restoration will take place. Moreover, in each aeon, rational creatures' moral choices will not be identical to previous aeons, but different and the aeons will see the rational creature's spiritual development. These aeons will offer to all rational creatures the time to get purified, illuminated, and thus voluntarily adhere to God. Notice that it was important that God not violate free will, but use the process of purification to enlighten rational creatures to their true identity and to their true end. Okay, back to the quote. Origen claimed that aeons or ages will come to an end and that this end will coincide with universal restoration and salvation, when all will be no more in an aeon, but God will be all in all. End quote. And so early Christian scholars, such as Origen, saw God's continuing purposes working out in the coming ages until the ages completed their purposes of allowing each child of God to finally be enlightened and to voluntarily want to do everything necessary to make their way back to the Father's house. We're not used to thinking of the future as being one of coming ages, but we can see the idea of coming ages in the New Testament in Ephesians 2, 7, where Paul speaks of the coming ages, not 
just the coming age, but the coming ages in which God will be showing the incomparable riches of His grace. But this way of thinking about the coming ages of purification and God being all in all started to gradually disappear in Christianity once the Roman Empire took on Christianity as a legitimate Roman religion. Rome couldn't finally beat Christianity, so it finally adopted it and used it as Rome had always used religion. Religion was a tool of the state. Part of its purpose was to bring order and control. Religion, conquering, violence, and control all went together. Roman imperial Christianity translated the Bible into Latin, the language of the empire. The translation of the Bible into Latin contributed, along with other factors, to a harsher understanding of God's judgments within the Western Church. Instead of having a Hebrew or Greek view of time moving forward in coming ages or aeons, the Roman imperial church had a Latin view of a static future. The Roman church, under the influence of Augustine's theology, anticipated eternal states, from the Latin word eternum, either of glory or of torment. In Roman imperial Christianity, it became understood that all who were in the church were headed for an eternum of bliss, while all outside of it were headed for an eternum of eusti. From the Latin word eusti comes the English word justice. The damned were in for an eternity of justice. In the Roman Latin church, it was understood that God's justice required an eternity of torment. The Roman Imperial Church did not think in Greek about God's judgment being a restorative, purifying process which would take place in coming ages. Instead, the Roman Imperial Church thought in Latin about God's judgment being a retributive, tormenting process which lasted for all eternity. This harsh Latin theology became orthodoxy. Augustine, the primary theologian of the Latin-speaking Western Church, could not read Greek, and he disliked the language. And, His inability to read the New Testament in its original language affected his ability to interpret it. Augustine's harsh Latin theology ended up overshadowing the gentle and forgiving and hopeful theology of the Greek-speaking early church fathers, such as Origen. Origen saw that God would finally be all in all, but Augustine saw that God would only be all in some, and the rest would be in for an eternity of eternal conscious torment. This grim view of God's future became increasingly enshrined in the Western Christian tradition. The story Augustine told, and the story that the Roman Church increasingly enshrined, was a sad story with a tragic end for most of humanity. About all of this, David Bentley Hart observes, If the story really does end as Augustine and countless others over the centuries have claimed it must, with most, or at any rate very many, or really any, beings consigned to eternal torment, And, if this story then also entails that God freely and needlessly created the world knowing that this would be the result, then Christianity has no evangel, no good news, to impart. There is only the hideous truth of a monstrous deity presiding over an evil world whose very existence is an act of cruelty, meaninglessly embellished with the additional narrative detail, almost parodic in its triviality of the arbitrary salvation of a few select souls who are not even in any special sense deserving of the privilege, else grace were not grace and absolute power were not absolute power. This is in fact the ghastliest possible disangel, the direst tidings ever visited on a world already too much burdened by unmerited suffering. To believe it even in part is to have all the reason one could ever need for refusing to procreate and for regarding the world with a hatred that even the starkest Gnostic dualism could not rival. And truly to believe it, in its own terms, 
one must at some level have lost the capacity to distinguish clearly between love and spite. So, leave it to David Bentley Hart not to mince words. But that's what academics do. They bring their strongest arguments to the table, and I think Dr. Hart is persuasive in his assessment of what became of the Western Christian tradition at the hands of Augustine and emperors like Justinian. This grim vision of Christianity became orthodoxy, and the Roman Emperor Justinian thought it should be the only official Christianity allowed in all the Roman Empire. One empire, one faith, one church, with eternal conscious torment for all who are outside it. I mentioned the Emperor Justinian because perhaps no other Roman emperor better embodied the desire to unite the power of the state with Christianity than the Emperor Justinian. In Justinian's Christian empire, Jews were persecuted, and pagans lost their rights to teach their beliefs. Justinian wanted one unified version of the Christian faith in his empire, and he wielded his power towards the accomplishment of this goal. And so it is not at all surprising that the Emperor Justinian ended up attacking the memory and the reputation of Origen, who he believed was the primary architect of Christian universalism. Origen, 184-254, was one of the most prominent early church fathers to support the universal restoration of all souls back to God. Truth be told, Origen was speculative and wide-ranging in his thinking, but during his day the boundaries of Christian thought were not as firmly instituted as they would later become. After Origen's time, others took his ideas even further in ways he himself would likely not have anticipated. The Emperor Justinian believed that Origen and those who further developed his ideas should be condemned. The Italian patristics scholar Ilaria Ramelli, in her book on the early history of Christian universalism entitled A Larger Hope, includes an extensive account of the confusing situation surrounding the condemnation of Origen. She then summarizes her conclusions this way. The so-called condemnation of Origen by the church in the 6th century probably never occurred proper, and even if it occurred, it did so only as a result of a long series of misunderstandings when the anthropological, eschatological, and psychological questions were no longer felt as open to investigation, as Origen considered them, but dogmatically established. The aforementioned condemnation was, in fact, a condemnation not at all of origin, but rather of a late and exasperated form of originism. Moreover, it was mainly wanted by Emperor Justinian, or better by his counselors given that he was not a theologian, and only partially, or even not at all, ratified by ecclesiastical representatives. As Laria Romelli notes, there was a church council in the 6th century called by Justinian. The Fifth General Council of the Church, as it is historically known, met in 553, and it is this council which is associated with the supposed condemnation of origin and of universal salvation. Yet, the council itself was full of intrigue, confusion, and misunderstanding. Scholars today debate the many perplexing details of what happened before and after that council. The reason for all the confusion is that by the 6th century, the name of Origen had become tangled up with all kinds of speculative ideas which went beyond the basic proposition that God would ultimately save all. As Robin Perry notes, In the 300 years between Origen's death and the Fifth Ecumenical Council, his ideas had been picked up and developed in more radical directions than one finds in Origen's own work. Indeed, arguably, Origen himself would have agreed with some of these anathemas. In part, it was the theology of these originists, people such as Evagrius of Pontus, 346-399, rather than that of Origen himself that was condemned by Justinian in the council. 
But neither the council nor the later church made this distinction between origin and originism. He was the seed from which the plant had grown, even if it had mutated as it developed. And thus he was condemned, in part, for the theological views of his heirs. Philip Schaff, editor of the complete works of the Church Fathers, describes the unusual way in which the Emperor Justinian convened the council. Schaff wrote, It must be admitted that before the opening of the council, which had been delayed by the resistance of the Pope, the bishops already assembled at Constantinople had to consider, by order of the Emperor, a form of Origenism that had practically nothing in common with Origen, but which was held, we know, by one of the Origenist parties in Palestine. The bishops certainly subscribed to the fifteen anathemas proposed by the emperor, but there is no proof that the approbation of the pope, who was at that time protesting against the convocation of the council, was asked. It is easy to understand how this extra conciliary sentence was mistaken at a later period for a decree of the actual ecumenical council. Now, the results of the fifth ecumenical council are definitive for Catholic and Orthodox Christians. However, given the many problems with this council, there are those among the Catholic and the Orthodox that do not consider that the ultimate restoration of humanity has ever been anathematized or pronounced heretical. To quote Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart again, listen to his assessment of the Fifth General Council. Hart writes, It is the most shameful episode in the history of Christian doctrine. For one thing, to have declared any man a heretic three centuries after dying in the peace of the church, in respect of doctrinal determinations not reached during his life, was a gross violation of all legitimate canonical order. But in Origen's case, it was especially loathsome. After Paul, there is no single Christian figure to whom the whole tradition is more indebted. It was Origen who taught the church how to read Scripture as a living mirror of Christ, who evolved the principles of later Trinitarian theology and Christology who majestically set the standard for Christian apologetics, who produced the first and richest expositions of contemplative spirituality, and who, simply said, laid the foundation of the whole edifice of developed Christian thought. Moreover, he was not only a man of extraordinary personal holiness, piety, and charity, but a martyr as well. Brutally tortured during the Decian persecution at the age of 66, he never recovered, but slowly withered away over a period of three years. I cannot really say what irks me more, though, that it happened or that, in fact, it never really did. The oldest records of the council make it clear that those fifteen anathemas were never even discussed by the assembled bishops, let alone ratified, published, or promulgated. And since the late 19th century, various scholars have convincingly established that neither origin or originism was ever the subject of any condemnation pronounced by the Holy Fathers in 553. The best modern critical edition of the Seven Councils, Norman Tanner's, simply omits the anathemas as spurious interpolations. Catholic priest and noted authority on spiritual formation, Richard Rohr, is also of the opinion that the ultimate restoration of humanity was never officially condemned by the Church. As Rohr sees it, there were a number of fathers in the early Church, the first four centuries, who believed in apocatastasis, which means universal restoration, Acts 3.21. They believed that the real meaning of the resurrection of Christ was that God's love was so perfect and so victorious that, in fact, it would finally win out in every single person's life. When I read the history of the church and its dogma, I see apocatastasis was never condemned as heretical. We may believe it if we want to. We were never told we had to believe it, but neither was it condemned. We almost hold out for a universal restoration that the true meaning of the raising of Jesus is that God will turn all our human crucifixions 
into resurrection. And then Rohr concludes his thoughts this way. Could God's love really be that great and that universal? Is life just a great school of love? I believe it is. Love is the lesson. And God's love is so great that God will finally teach it to all of us. We'll finally surrender, and God will finally win. That will be God's justice. So, in a nutshell, here's what happened. Christian universalism was alive and well in the Greek-speaking environment of early Christianity, and it had the support of many rank-and-file Christians, as well as support from many intellectual leaders of early Christianity as well. But then there was this other opinion that was much less optimistic and sunny. This stark opinion was that all who were not saved members of the church would be in for an eternity of conscious torment, and it was Augustine who was most forceful about this. But then what happened was that Augustine's opinion became the orthodox view as Christianity became more and more defined by the needs of the Roman Empire. And then the Emperor Justinian tried in his way to force out anyone from the church who didn't believe in the eternal torment of the non-saved. Justinian didn't succeed as much as he wanted, but he was successful enough to put a cloud over any type of Christianity that wasn't based on the eternal torment of the damned. So if you believed in the annihilation of the wicked or in the ultimate restoration of the wicked, you had to be very careful in Western Christianity from the 6th century on. And all of this led to a lasting cloud over the proposition that God would eventually deliver all from the grip of sin and death. But that wasn't the end of controversies in the church. As the church continued through its history in Western civilization, there were increasing tensions and doctrinal controversies. And when the price for being wrong is eternal torment, even the possibility that you might be called a heretic had a chilling effect on things. After all, it only made sense to kill heretics because they were far more dangerous than murderers. A murderer could only kill the body, but a heretic could lead a soul to eternal damnation. Along these lines, Thomas Talbot makes the following good observation that religious persecution in the Western church typically has had its roots in an obsessive fear of eternal damnation. It is no doubt possible to believe in eternal damnation without believing that God would be so unjust as to damn someone eternally for an honest mistake in abstract theology. But fear is often irrational, and as a matter of historical fact, the organized Christian church has consistently employed the fear of eternal damnation as a weapon against supposed theological error, as determined by self-appointed authorities, of course. It has consistently cultivated in its constituency the fear that those who die in unbelief or with certain mistaken beliefs are precisely those whom God will damn eternally in hell. Such fear, which springs ultimately from a lack of confidence or faith in the character of God, has had disastrous consequences in the life of the church. Having no confidence in the love of God, those in the grips of such fear have too often wielded the sword in a sincere effort to protect their loved ones from the tragic consequences, as they have seen it, of error in religious matters. So, all of this explains why the early, diverse, nonviolent, optimistic, Greek-language-based version of Christianity was largely forgotten in Western civilization. But the good news is that, thankfully, today we are free to once again consider the optimistic theology of early church fathers such as Gregory of Nyssa. The last few hundred years has generated tons of scholarship on these issues, and the Internet is now making it all available, and there are many wonderful resources that we can have access to these days. But something very unexpected has happened in the middle of all of this. The resurgence of interest in Christian universalism is, in many cases, surprisingly 
being led by Christians with backgrounds in the evangelical wing of the Christian faith. And this curious development is where we will pick up our conversation next time. Until then, I invite you to join me in believing in a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.